John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We read this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six water stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look at this text today, as you speak to us by your word today, we pray that you would fill our hearts with joy at who Christ is for us. We pray that you would show us the glory of Christ, that we would believe in Him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This is probably a somewhat familiar passage of Scripture to you. You've seen this, these verses before. You've seen this story before. I just want to walk through briefly these verses and, and explain a few things, a few things in the background before we kind of talk about the meaning of this passage, the meaning of this wedding at Cana and Jesus' miracle that He performs. Now Jesus, uh, in the first few verses, we see that Jesus and His mothers were invited to this wedding. The wine was gone. They have no more wine. Why is that a problem? Well, in the day, they would have wedding feasts. They would have a wedding and then for days afterwards, they would have a feast. Now we think a wedding is a fun time now and the reception, we have a good time. But back in the day, in these days, they would spend almost as much as a week drinking and feasting and enjoying their time with the bridegroom and his bride. They would spend this time rejoicing. But here, in this case, we see that the wine runs out. There's no more wine. Jesus responds to his mother at this request. Woman, why do you involve me? Now, the NIV says, dear woman. Some of your versions may say, Woman, what does this have to do with me? And although this is not a sharp rebuke of Jesus, we should see it as he's kind of distinguishing who he is for his mother Mary. She must no longer relate to him simply as a son, but as, as Lord. She must look to him as not only her son, but as her Lord. Jesus replies, my time has not yet come. We'll see a lot more about that in the coming uh, as we go through this text. And his mother tells them what to do. Do whatever he tells you. This, some have pointed out, shows Mary's great faith. That she knew that Jesus had the power to, to change things. To turn 
water into wine, although she maybe didn't know what he was going to do, she knew he could take care of it. She knew where to go. It does show her faith. Nearby stood six stone water jars. We'll see more of what that represents. Holding 20 to 30 gallons of water, so over 100 gallons of water. These pots would have been used for washing hands in ceremonial ways, representing cleansing. Jesus tells them to fill the jars of water. He fills them all the way to the top, to the very brim, and then gets the servants to take some to the master of the banquet. Now, they would have a master of the banquet, one in charge of taking care of all the food and all the the drink, everything that was necessary. He would be in charge. I guess you could think kind of like a wedding coordinator these days. They're taking care of all the details. But the master tastes the water that had been turned into to wine, he didn't know where it came from. And he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. So during this week-long celebration, the guests would be drinking this wine and their senses would become dull when they had too much. And so the, the custom was, then you bring out the cheaper wine because they don't taste it. They don't know that it's any different. But he says, you have saved the best till now. And this... This is the first miraculous sign that Jesus performs. Throughout the book of John, we'll see that he performs many signs. I think seven in John. And this is the first. Now, John says, he thus revealed his glory in this sign, in this miracle. And his disciples put their faith in him. Now, John also says at the very end of the book, that there are many other works, many other signs, many other miracles that Jesus did while he walked on the earth. And if you were to write them all down, I don't think you could fit, all the libraries in the world wouldn't hold them. So we must ask ourselves, if there were all those things that Jesus did, all these signs and wonders that Jesus did, why does John include this one? Nobody's dead in this situation. Nobody's dying. Nobody's threatened with death. It simply seems to be Jesus is taking care of a bridegroom's embarrassment. That not having enough wine. Why would John include this parable in the gospel? We also know from the end of John why John is writing this gospel. Why he's writing this book. He says, I write all these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. His sole purpose, His his focus in this gospel is that we might understand that Jesus is the Messiah predicted long ago who would come and make all things right. And so this this miracle points to that. It does show that. Just the very fact that He can turn water into wine shows that He is the Messiah, that He is Almighty, that there's something different about who Jesus is. So I do think that this, this miracle shows that Jesus is the Christ. In a sense, John is presenting proof. This is the Messiah. But I think there's something even more going on here. Something more specific about who this Messiah is. About what He brings to the world. And if I could summarize it, I would say it like this. This miracle of turning water into wine shows that Jesus is the Messiah who turns our shame into joy. He turns our shame into rejoicing. Now look at the shame which was potentially coming upon the bridegroom. The bridegroom 
would be responsible for having enough food, having enough drink for all of his guests. And maybe we don't feel it as much as they would, the first readers would, but this running out of wine would bring great shame upon the bridegroom, upon his family. They didn't have enough for all their guests. What is going on here? You, you could probably even imagine a little bit about the shame he might feel if uh, your daughter got married and you were in charge of the reception and providing all the food that was necessary, everything that was needed, and you came up short and only half of the amount of people had food and had drink. Can you f- imagine the embarrassment you might feel from that? In this culture, though, the shame is important. This was a culture of shame. You wouldn't want to be shamed in this way. And it might be hard for us to understand, hard for us to grasp as Americans because we almost feel shame at nothing. You can see that when you turn on the MTV Awards, when you watch Super Bowl halftimes. We Americans feel no shame, it seems. But I, I do think we understand that there's a universal, uh, a universal sense of shame. And uh, some of our parents, or maybe some of you parents, have mastered the art of shaming your children, unfortunately, right? I, I remember times when I went to my mother, I know I had done something wrong or that she wouldn't like, and I'll say, are, are you mad, Mama? And you know what she would say? No, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Oh, you can feel the, the shame just dripping off of your forehead. We know what shame feels like. And this bridegroom had the potential of bringing shame upon his family for not doing what he ought to have done, for not having enough wine as it ran, ran out. Now, I think, though, in, on a deeper level, this points to perhaps the, sh- the shame that must have been upon the people of Israel. They had no land of their own. They had no government of their own. God had promised them long ago they would have a land. And yet, because of their disobedience, they had forfeited that right. They had forfeited their right to the land. So they had been cast out. They had no land and they were waiting for a Messiah who would bring an end to their shame, who would set them up as the rulers over God's kingdom. But I think even more, this represents a a deeper shame. You could think of the shame of Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember when they sinned against God? And God, the Scripture says, God was walking through the garden and Adam and Eve heard God coming. And what did they do? They hid themselves. They say to God, we heard you coming and we we hid ourselves because we were naked and afraid. They, they, They now have a sense of shame because of their sin. They felt unclean. They felt dirty. Their shame came from their disobedience. You can think of the uncleanliness, the dirtiness of the people of the world in the times of Noah. It says that the people had become corrupted and everyone did sin against God. They did evil. But Noah found favor in the sight of God and so what did, what did God do? He cleansed the world. He used water to bring a flood to wipe out the uncleanliness, the corruption. Really, the the entire Old Testament system was designed to show us this need for cleansing, to show us this need to get rid of our shame. 
The washings, the ritual cleansings, the sacrifices, everything pointed to this need that we have. And even John the Baptist, as we saw in the previous week, he comes baptizing in water, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. You need to be cleansed. The dirtiness of your soul needs to be cleansed. Your shame needs to be taken away. And really, this speaks to all of us, because in and of ourselves, we are dirty. We're dirty. We're, we're unclean in the sight of God, in and of ourselves. Many of us may not know that. You know, it happens to me from time to time, especially it seems when I go to a Mexican restaurant, that I will inevitably drop some of that salsa on my shirt, and there'll be a big splotch of salsa. Sometimes I don't even know it, and I'll just be walking around, and there's this embarrassing stain on my shirt. But just because I don't know it's there doesn't mean it's actually there. If I knew it, then I would feel some sense of shame. I'd feel some sense of embarrassment. Perhaps because we have become so busy in our jobs, in our recreation, in our leisure, we haven't even taken time to notice the stains upon our soul. The sin that is in our lives. It's there. Sometimes we don't even notice it. The truth of the matter is we are dirty. We are unclean without God without a Savior. Who will take away our shame? Who will take away your shame? The sin that you have committed even this week. Even this week. How will it be dealt with? It must be taken care of. Scripture teaches us that on the last day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do it in joy and others will do it in great shame. Shame will come upon them because the day of the Lord has come. The day of judgment has come. Who will take away our shame? Who will remove the uncleanliness from our hands? The bridegroom's shame was turned to joy. Jesus turned the water into wine and removed the shame that the bridegroom would feel. Now, in these days, wine would represent joy. Great joy, great rejoicing, a feast, a party. Wine would represent abundance and blessing from God. In fact, the prophets said that when Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, we will have an abundance, we will have a feast. Uh, In Joel and in Amos, those prophets say, in the end, when God restores the fortunes of Israel, wine will drip from the mountains. We will have feasts to the Lord and rejoicing. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah speaks about this feasting as well when Messiah comes. In Isaiah 25, verses 6-9, through we read this, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet, of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of His people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him and He saved us. This is the Lord 
We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Jesus comes and turns the bridegroom's shame to joy. And we, and we should also notice how He does this miracle. These water pots, these, uh, these stone pots that were filled with water, this was for ceremonial cleansing. By Jesus' miracle here, he is, he is saying a new age has dawned. I am bringing something new from the old way of doing things. Those, those cleansing rituals, the sacrifices, the washings, they could never remove the dirt of sin from you. They could never remove the filthiness from your hands. Jesus here is inaugurating a new age. The old has gone and the new has come. Jesus removes our shame, but not through the law, not through washings, not through ceremonies. It is through Jesus alone that our shame is taken away, that our shame is turned into joy. He is the Messiah who has come, but He is a particular kind of Messiah. He turns our shame into joy. Notice how He does it. He fills the pots to the brim, overflowing, As John said earlier, we all have received from His grace. We all have received from His fullness, grace upon grace. Jesus comes and brings joy in abundance. He turns our shame into joy. But how does He do this? How does He turn our shame into joy? Here in this miracle, which I think is kind of a historical parable, He turns the bridegroom's shame into joy by a miracle, by performing a miracle of turning water into wine, by letting the feast continue, by removing the shame of the bridegroom. But how does He do it for us? I think a key to understanding this passage is in verse 4. Jesus says to His mother, Woman, why do you involve Me? And Jesus says, My Time has not yet come. Many translations this will say, my hour has not come. What what does this mean? It seems kind of weird. uh, Jesus' mother says, they have no more wine. And he says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour hasn't come yet. What are you talking about, Jesus? What is he talking about? If you continue to read the book of John, you would see that this phrase is used often. John uses it several times. When Jesus is almost captured by the Jews to be arrested, John says, uh, he, he almost got called, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. <clears throat> Happens a couple times. His time, his hour had not yet come. And then we see in verse, chapter 12, verse 23, when his hour did come. Turn there in your Bibles quickly. John chapter 12, verse 23. <clears throat> Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. 
My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What is Jesus speaking of when he speaks of his hour? His hour that has not yet come. When John speaks of his hour that has not yet come. When Jesus here speaks of his hour which has come. How will Jesus turn our shame into joy? It will only come by his death. By his suffering at the hands of sinners. And by his death on the cross for sinners. His hour, Jesus' hour, is the hour of his suffering, his pain. And ultimately, His crucifixion on the cross. Jesus turns our shame into joy by means of Christ's death. You see, some people think that Jesus primarily came to live and to show us how to live. And if that is the case, if Jesus came to live, simply to live, then He just came to be an example. But if He came to die, He didn't just come for an example to show us how to live. He came To make us alive. He didn't come to just make us good people. He didn't come to make good people bad. He he didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. This is why Jesus came. To die. And in His death, He turns our shame into joy. See, this miracle is a sign to show us how God brings joy into our hearts. By means of his death. It's not a light-hearted, happy, clappy sort of joy. When I say we ought to be joyful, I don't mean forget about all your problems and all your sadness and everything like that. I mean that in the in the midst of pain, in the midst of sorrows, in the midst of struggle, there is an underlying joy. An underlying joy which keeps us secure in his arms. It's, look, at, look at what Jesus does in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. That Scripture says, For the joy set before Him, He endured the shame and bore the cross. Imagine, if you would, someone running the gauntlet. Do you know what that means? Running the gauntlet is a a form of punishment that used to be used, and there would be two lines of people, and a man would run through the lines as people punched him and hit him or used sticks To beat him to death. The way Hebrews, the way the author of Hebrews presents it, Jesus ran through the gauntlet of God's wrath. And on the other side, waiting on the other side of this gauntlet was joy. Unimaginable joy. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured. The suffering, endured the pain, endured the punishment of God's wrath. And on the other side of God's wrath was joy. He he endured that for us. If we were to go through suffering God's wrath, if we were to go through the gauntlet of God's wrath, it would be one blow and we would be out for the count. We would be nothing. But Jesus endured 
the shame that was due to us. Jesus endured the pain that was due to us. And it wasn't simply His suffering at the hands of His torturers. It wasn't simply the beatings. It wasn't simply the nails going through His hands and His feet. It was ultimately the wrath of God coming upon Him for the sins of the world. The wrath of God that you and I deserved. The shame that we deserved because of our sin. Because we have lived for ourselves and not for God. Jesus endured this for sinners. And the Scripture says, and now God has highly exalted Him and given Him the name above every name. In heaven and on the earth and under the earth so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now it strikes me that our life here on this earth is similar to Jesus' suffering and joy in this. In order to get the joy, you first have to endure the trial. In order to get to the joy, you first must endure the trial. Joy comes after the trial. We live in the already and not yet of the kingdom. We already have been given eternal life and yet we have not yet received it in full. We have already received joy upon joy in Christ. And yet, many of you know, because of the sufferings you've gone through, the sufferings you've endured, that your joy is not yet complete. We live in the already and not yet. The ultimate fulfillment still awaits. The ultimate fulfillment of our joy still awaits. You see here, at the coming of the Messiah, Jesus turns shame into joy. But it's just a parable. It's just a point, pointer to something greater yet to come. The feast that is to come. Here in the wedding we see that joy is revealed. There's a greater joy to come. There's a feast. There's a celebration that continues. And yet, the feast In celebration, there is a greater one yet to come. We see at the end of this passage that God's glory is revealed. Jesus' glory is made manifest. And yet there is a greater glory yet to be manifest. Turn finally to one other passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because I want to show you that there is a glory yet to come in the midst of our struggles. In the midst of our sorrows. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Do you ever feel like you're losing heart? That the struggles of this life or the pain you've endured, you're losing heart. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. And you say, my, my, my troubles aren't light and momentary. They're, they're difficult, they're painful. But continue reading. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. 
In this passage, we are reminded that though you may be going through troubles now, if you're looking to Jesus, those troubles will pale into comparison for the glory that is to be revealed. An eternal weight of glory for those who trust in Christ, for those who receive Him in His death and suffering and resurrection. Their shame is turned to joy. So, I want to say to you, if you are in Christ, where is your joy? Do you have joy as you're singing praises to the Lord? Do you have joy in your heart when you are serving your wife, when you are serving your children? And if you're like me, the answer is all too often, no. I fail in this all too often. In sharing ministries with those who are in need, where's my joy? But this is who God is making us into. If we are children of God, this is who He is changing us into. He is giving us joy. And as we look to Christ more and more, as we look to Him who turns shame into joy, He will give us that joy. And as we look to the joy which is to come, when He will wipe away every tear, when He will erase death once and for all, we are reminded not to lose hope, to continue in joy, serving and obeying Him. Let's pray together now and ask God to give us that joy that we all desire. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to You, we recognize that our sin has brought great shame upon us. We know that if we are to face up to the reality of Your Word and Your demand for holiness and righteousness, that we fall far short of it. That in and of ourselves we are unclean. Father, maybe there's one here today who hasn't trusted in You, who hasn't come to the end of himself, who hasn't understood his filthiness in front of him. I pray that You would show him Show her their sin and all of its ugliness and all of its filthiness. That they would come to You, Jesus Christ, the One who turns shame into joy. Pray that they would come to You recognizing Your perfect life, Your sacrificial death on the cross for sinners, and Your resurrection from the dead. That they would come to You trusting in the salvation that You give. And Father, for us who are believers, who have believed on Your name, we confess that far too often we have, we have lived a joyless Christian life. For whatever reasons, for just the, the mundane, day-to-day events of life, we have, we have lost our joy in some ways. Or maybe it's because of a a trial that we've been through, a suffering that we haven't been able to cope with. Father, I pray that You would strengthen that person. That You would hold them up in Your hands. That You would remind them that although joy is not perfected in this life, it will be in the life to come. Lord, draw us to Yourself in joy now. That we would sing with joy. That we would live with joy for your glory, for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. It's in him we pray.